Well, I invite you this morning to turn to the book of Colossians, and we'll be in chapter 3 this morning. We'll begin our time, verse 15. That's Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15. And if you are using the Pew Bible in front of you, you'll find that on page 984. In fact, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we'd love for you to take that Bible and the pew rack in front of you as our gift to you. Um, As you're finding your way to Colossians, I also want to draw your attention to uh, this insert that you have uh, received in your bulletin when you came into this room. And the insert says, uh, be one with them in prayer. And this explains uh, what our church is going to do, Hamilton Baptist Church, in the coming week as we remember the persecuted church in prayer. Now, on November 2nd is the International Day of the Persecuted Church. If you were here last year, we had a special service in which we uh, devoted our time to becoming aware of what's going on amongst our persecuted family and interceding for them in prayer. And we're going to do the same this year. On November 2nd, we'll have a special service in a regard of intercession for our persecuted family. But we're not just simply this time around going to spend uh, an hour and a half on Sunday morning considering the persecuted church. And so if you'll actually turn uh, this insert over on the backside, you're going to see that we, what we want to do as a church and what the elders are asking the church to do is that we would take an entire week and that we would remember what our church family is going through throughout this world and that we would uh, remember them in prayer especially. And so you'll see that we intend to send out daily emails during this week starting on October 27th through November 2nd informing you of a particular case of persecution and how you can pray as well as giving you Scripture in order that we can learn what God's Word says about uh, persecution and suffering uh, for His church. If you're not receiving our emails, I invite you to sign up for those. Uh, you'll, you'll, get, you'll be able to sign up on the uh, Welcome Center out there in the foyer. There's a clipboard for you to put your email address down. You also notice that our community groups and our Wednesday night uh, Bible study and prayer, we're going to ask them to spend a, a portion of their time together in prayer for the persecuted church, interceding for our brothers and sisters in faith. And then on Thursday, the elders are calling for a church-wide fast from sunup to sundown. And we know that Jesus has expects us to fast and pray according to Matthew chapter 6. It's something we don't uh, do as often as we probably should. And we are going to ask the church to engage in that as we remember once again our persecuted family. In addition to fasting and praying, we're going to have a special time of prayer that Thursday afternoon at 12 to 1230 uh, in this uh, building. And so we invite you, if you can come on Thursday in the middle of our fast, we're going to pray for our brothers and sisters. Many of you will not be able to make that, of course, but we would ask you to take that time wherever you may be from 12 to 1230 if you're able to to devote that time for prayer for our persecuted brothers and sisters. You would join us even if you can't be here. You'll also notice that on Saturday night, uh, Hamilton Baptist Church from 8 to 10 p.m. is going to join a simulcast with thousands of Christians, tens of thousands of Christians around the world as we are led by our new IMB president, David Platt, and uh, author of The Insanity of God, Nick Ripkin. 
And they're going to lead us for two hours in intercession for the persecuted church. There's going to be testimonies from persecuted Christians. And we're going to meet together. And I trust that will be very powerful in our life. In fact, if you haven't got a copy of Nick Ripkin's book, in The Insanity of God, it is certainly one of the most inspiring books I've read in, in many, many years. It is um, amazing as he goes throughout the persecuted world and interviews persecuted Christians and how they're enduring. And then we'll do that on Saturday night. And then, uh, well, of course, we'll have our Sunday morning service. And then on Sunday evening, we're going to join again, the simulcast again, this time from 7 to 8, as we wrap up our week of focus, prayer, on our persecuted family. I want you to understand, Christian, as you live here in America, um, despite recent events in our country, we enjoy unprecedented liberty. And it is a liberty that the majority of our family in Christ does not enjoy. And so we need to remember that. And we need to call out to God for them as Scripture instructs us. And I hope you'll be part of that. In addition to that, we're also going to take an offering up on November 2nd. It's one of our three annual offerings. And this will be entirely in support of the persecuted church, namely that we can buy Bibles for them and make sure that they receive those Bibles. You can buy a Bible for $3 and get it into the hands of a believer in a closed country. And we pray that you will give sacrificially to that offering. In fact, I thought we would uh, spend a moment before we get into the Word in prayer for a persecuted brother in particular. Many of you have been praying for Pastor Saeed Abedini, who is an Iranian pastor. He's been credited with establishing about 100 house churches in 30 Iranian cities with more than 2,000 members. Uh, Pastor Abedini was arrested in the summer of 2012 and on January 27, 2013, he was sentenced to eight years in prison on charges of undermining national security through his Christian evangelistic activities. We know that his health continues to worsen. According to family members who have visited him recently, he is experiencing significant pain in his abdomen and has sustained eternal injuries from the beatings he has endured while in prison for which he needs surgery. And he just a week or so ago missed the birthday of his eight-year-old daughter who was there in that picture next to him. He wrote her a birthday letter, and I thought I would share it with you this morning. Dear Rebecca Grace, Happy 8th birthday. You are growing so fast and becoming more beautiful every day. I praise God for His faithfulness to me every day as I watch from a distance through prison walls and see pictures and hear stories of how you are growing both spiritually and physically. Oh, how I long to see you. I know that you, that you question why you have prayed so many times for my return, and yet I am not home. Now, there is a big why in your mind, you are asking. Why Jesus hasn't answered your prayers and the prayers of all the people around the world praying for my release and for me to be home with you and our family. The answer to the why is who? Who is in control? The Lord Jesus is in control. I desire for you to learn important lessons during these trying times. Lessons that you carry now and for the rest of your life. The answer to the why is who? Who is in control of the Lord? Jesus Christ, our God, is in control. Jesus allows me to be kept here for his glory. He is doing something inside each of us and also outside in the world. It is for Jesus. He is worth the price. And he has a plan to be glorified through our lives. 
I want you to read the book of Habakkuk. He had the same question as you. But see that the Lord answered him in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 3, quote, The vision comes and doesn't delay on time. Wait for it. Mommy and I always had big desires to serve Jesus and had a great vision to be used for his kingdom and for his glory. So today we pay the cost because God who created us called us to that. And so I want you to know the answer in all your prayers is that God is in control. Therefore, declare as Habakkuk did, even if we do not get the result we are looking for, God is still good and we will praise His holy name. Habakkuk 3.17 Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor figs be on the vine, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no fruit, Though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will have joy in the God of my salvation. My dear beloved daughter, Rebecca Grace, I pray God will bring me back home soon. But if not, we will still sing together as Habakkuk did. Hallelujah. Either separated by prison walls or together at home. So let Daddy hear you sing a loud hallelujah that I could hear all the way here in prison. I'm so proud of you, my sweet, courageous daughter. Glory to God forever. Amen. Kisses and blessings, Daddy. Father in heaven, we rejoice that you are in control. We don't doubt it for a second. Even when trouble and trial comes upon your people, for our Lord has told us it would come. He declared to us, if they persecute me, they will persecute you also. And we have seen your people suffering for the name of Christ for thousands of years. It continues today. May it never shake our confidence that our God is good and great and powerful and wise. Your ways are above our ways. Your thoughts above our thoughts. Who has been your counselor? Who has given you wisdom? You know exactly what you're doing even in trouble and difficulty. And so we affirm our trust in you this morning as we pray for our brother, Pastor Abedin. We ask, Father, if it is in, in your plan, in your kindness, that he would return home, that he might be with his daughter and son and his wife, that he might continue his work. But we thank you for the faith that he has. We thank you for the encouragement he is even to us across this world as we are reminded that you are worth the cost. You are worth our whole lives. We pray especially this morning for Rebecca Grace, who misses her dad. Work in her heart, please, Father. Draw her close to you and this entire family as we pray for them in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I I hope you have found now your way to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, verse 15, excuse me. Please hear now the word of God. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. 
Father, we thank you now for your time that we can consider your word for us. And we pray that you would help us to understand it well and apply it to our lives and that you would teach us and you would minister to us and we would be transformed through it. We thank you for giving it to us this morning and we come willingly and gladly and sit under it as our great authority. For we believe it is your revelation given to your church. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. William Carey and his fellow missionaries labored in India for years in the early 1800s without any apparent fruitfulness, without a single convert to Christ. Over time, this missionary band began to realize the power that the Hindu music had over the hearts of the people whom they were trying to reach with the gospel. The Hindu gurus would write short songs for their disciples to sing, songs to the moon and to the river and the various Hindu deities. And so Carey decided, after he had said preaching was like trying to plow through solid rock, to begin to write songs. In fact, he even on occasion would sing one of his street sermons. One song he taught to a young Hindu carpenter, a man named Krishna, who was working on the mission home. He, of course, wrote it in Bengali, but in English it roughly is sin-confessing, sin-forsaking, Christ-righteousness-embracing, the soul is free. And after learning that song and others that Carrie and his missionaries wrote, this man named Krishna said, the Hindu music that I have been singing my whole life has never brought any peace to my soul. I have now finally found the peace that I was looking for in Christ. So after seven years, Krishna bowed his knee to King Jesus. And in spite of death threats and a mass of people who surrounded his home, chanting to his former gods, he pushed through the crowd and made his way to the river where he was publicly baptized as a disciple of Jesus Christ. He being the first of what are now literally millions and millions of Indians who have placed their faith in Christ and traced that back to William Carey and the songs in which he wrote like Christ righteousness embracing the soul is free. I wonder if Carey learned this from those who went before him, like Martin Luther, who preceded Carey by 300 years, who introduced congregational singing to replace the monotone chanting of the priests. In fact, Martin Luther, who led the Protestant Reformation, wrote a hymnal. And this hymnal was said to be one of the most powerful missionaries for biblical doctrine. One 16th century Jesuit priest complained of the effects of the hymnal, saying, Luther has damned more people with his hymns than with all his sermons. Of course, who is they liberated? He saved them through that hymnal. In fact, 500 years later, we're still singing what Luther has given us. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Of course, singing was no innovation to Luther. You go back to the very beginning of God's people and they have been singing people. 
And you read the Old Testament, you find choirs and congregational singing and hymns. In fact, we have a whole book of hymns, don't we? The book of Psalms. And I don't know if you ever paid much notice to it, but many of those hymns have little instructions at the beginning of the hymn and instructs the musicians on how to play and, and instructs the choir leader on how to lead the choir that they intend to sing this hymn. And we have hymns like we considered just a moment ago. Psalm 95, Oh, come let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation or Psalm 96 so sing to the Lord a new song sing to the Lord all the earth or Psalm 59 but I will sing of your strength I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning and so God's people from the very beginning of God's people have been singing his praise and will continue on until God's people until all eternity in fact, we look in the book of Revelation and we are given a glimpse of the destiny in which you and I one day will enjoy through Christ. And we see the church there surrounding the throne of God and the Lamb who was slain. And what are they doing? What are they occupying themselves with? They are singing over and over again. We see them singing. Revelation 5.9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll. And Revelation 14, I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of thunder. In other words, it was loud. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. So it was beautiful and loud. And they were singing a new song before the throne. They were singing. In fact, they were even learning new music. New songs. Go figure. They are actually accumulating more songs in which to praise God. We find it in, he- in heaven, the, the hundreds of millions singing of God's glory and might and power and majesty and dominion and strength and wisdom and grace and mercy. They are praising Him for it. God's people have always been singing, always will be singing. We are a musical people, I believe, because we have, if you will, a musical God. We know, of course, that Jesus sang. Being raised as a Jewish boy, He would sing the psalms as all Jews would on their holidays and festivities. We know specifically it was at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, excuse me, in which we now celebrate, repeat through the Lord's Supper. That The Bible tells us in Matthew 26 and verse 30 that Jesus and his apostles sung a hymn. And many have noted this wonderful verse in Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one will, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will exult over you with loud singing. Isn't that extraordinary that one day God will sing over you. He is going to celebrate the fact that you belong to him and he will do so by singing. Our God is a musical God. We have been considering over these past, I think it's week six now, the church. And we've been thinking about um, that we are a new covenant people. And as God has called us together, what does that mean for us here at Hamilton Baptist Church? And last week we looked at, well, we, one thing it means for us is that we remember the death of Christ through the Lord's Supper. And we looked in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 last week. And I don't know if you remember, but we noted that the Lord's Supper was something that they do when they come together. We saw that in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians five times. He says, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together. And the church is gathering together. And one thing the church 
does when they gather together is they take the Lord's Supper. They remember the death of Christ through the Lord's Supper. But of course, that's not the only thing that the church does when they gather together. We see the church emerge in the book of Acts. In chapter 2, we have this wonderful description of the, the very first New Testament church. And the Bible tells us they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so there was teaching there. There was one anothering going on there. There was the Lord's Supper going on there. And there was prayer going on there. But that's not all that they did because we read elsewhere in Scripture that when they came together, they would sing. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 26, when you come together, each one as a hymn, Paul writes. Or Ephesians 5, we're called to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord. And here we see in a text we'll consider this morning, Colossians 3 verse 16, that we are to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in our hearts to God. Now today I want to spend some time considering this congregational singing that we do week in and week out. I entitled the sermon, A Worshiping People. I did that a couple months ago when I laid out this series. And my intent, to be honest, was to spend this time with us considering everything that we do when we gather together for this corporate worship. And when I sat down to write that sermon, I realized this is going to take me about three hours, and I love you, and so I won't do that to you. And so what I decided to do is I was just going to focus in on what is it, what are we doing when we're, when we're singing together? In fact, I, I preach in April, if you're interested on what we're doing when we're having the word of God preached to us. And you could go and access that sermon online. But today I want to I develop a theology of singing. That's not all right? Let's, let's consider why, why are we gathering together and sing? Dude, I don't know if you do this anywhere else throughout your week. You gather together with a bunch of people and sing some songs. It seems to somewhat unusual in our culture. And yet we do this uh, all the time. We gather together every week to sing, uh, praise God, to sing God. In fact, I don't know if you were aware, the Bible commands us to do it. We're commanded no less than 50 times to sing. And so let's think about it. Some of that excites some of you. Yeah, I want to learn about singing. So others perhaps are thinking, really? We're going to spend this whole time thinking about why we, we sing, right? I don't even like to sing, you may be thinking. Um, I simply just want to challenge you to s- submit yourself to God's word. God expects you to sing to him. I just say very humbly. That to not sing to God is to disobey God, is to reject what he wants you to do for your life. And there, there may be something wrong in your heart that you need to evaluate. Maybe this will be helpful for you as it's laid out for you. Maybe for the first time, what God expects us to do through our hearts and our mouths in, in singing. And others may think, well, you know, it's good for those who can sing, but I can't sing. Pastor, I can't sing. Well, of course you can sing. Everyone can sing. Now, not everyone can sing well, right? Amen? I've expected those who sit near me to amen that, but... Praise God. God never once in His Word says, you are commanded to sing well, right? Not once. We are commanded to sing to Him and to praise Him. In fact, I think our corporate worship is probably one of the best places for bad singers to sing, don't you think? 
I mean, we got enough good singers, they'll just overshadow us, and, and we won't distract, you should hear the elders when we, so we need more good singers when the elders sing every time we meet together, but here we kind of get overshadowed as we sing to the Lord and praise God, and so let's think about this for a moment. I, I have six principles there on your notes on the theology of singing. We first discover that our praise to God is informed by God's Word. We're going to camp out here for a little bit, we'll breeze through some of the other points, but I really want to flesh this out. In fact, I think here verse 16 helps us a great deal. So we see, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And so he begins talking about this corporate gathering of the church. And that's clear from the context of this chapter that we are to be people about the word. The word is essential in our life as Christians. It's essential to our church. This makes Christians somewhat unique. Uh, most world religions are more concerned with rituals and ceremonies and things like that and practices. And yet Christianity from its very beginning have been people who certainly have aspects of that, but ultimately are people centered around God's word. And they want God's word taught and heralded and preached and proclaimed and discussed and considered and memorized and applied to our lives. This is how God reveals himself to us. He shows us who he is and what he has done and what he plans to do and how we We are to follow him. It is through his word. Faith comes by hearing, right? And hearing through the, you know what? The word of, the word, actually the word of Christ, he says. The same phrase he uses here in verse 16. This is how our, we receive faith and our faith becomes empowered and, and refreshed and, and strengthened. In fact, he tells us here in this text, let the word of Christ dwell in you. And it's the picture of let the word take up a dwelling in your life. Let it have residence in your life. Let the word of God live in your home. So when you come down to the breakfast table, who's there to meet you? Well, it's the Word of God, and, and you drive to work, and who's sitting right next to you to help you know how to drive and how to treat those around you? It is the Word of God, and you go and you talk to your coworker, and who wants to join the conversation and inform you how you can should speak? It is the Word of God, and you sit down and watch television at night, and who sits there next to you to help you at that time? It is the Word of God. The Word is to live with us, to reside with us, and just not us individually, but us as a church. Our church is to be focused on the Word of Christ. We always must be chained to God's Word. Let it never happen in Hamilton Baptist Church that we're more concerned with inspirational thoughts or positive thinking or political exhortations or even personal testimonies. Let us come together and center ourselves and submit to God's Word. Let people think of Hamilton Baptist Church. Oh, that's where the Word of God lives. The Word of God resides amongst those, amongst those people. And so the words that come and dwell in our life, we do this by preaching it and listening to it and discussing it and reading it, memorizing it and obeying it. The words to dwell with us. My question for you then is, do you read the Word? Do you read it? I mean, does the book get opened? And, and not just read it like water running through a pipe. Do you consider it? And Discuss it maybe with your spouse or your children or your parents, your friends. Do you, do you pray about it? Do you memorize it maybe? Meditate on it? I'm thrilled for the opportunity the youth have this, 
this weekend in this youth retreat that's going on Friday and Saturday and focusing on meditating on the Word and how we can do that and how we can apply the Word to our life and ways in which we can memorize it. And I trust that many of our teenagers will be richly blessed through that time. The Word is to come and to dwell on us. In fact, he uses this word richly. You see that in verse 16? Let the Word of Christ Christ dwell in you richly. Right? The Word brings wealth in your life. You let the Word of Christ in your home, he will begin to decorate your home, right, with beauty and kindness and grace and joy and mercy. And you will find that your home and your church begins to change if he dwells. He comes with riches. In fact, my kids love stories about treasure. Are your kids like that? You know, hidden treasure and sunken treasure and, and uh, discovering treasure. Well, the Bible is constantly presenting the Word of God as this treasure in which we can explore. In fact, Paul loved, he must have loved these stories too. Because look over in Colossians chapter 2. In verse 2, he says, That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Note this, to reach all the riches of the assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It is in Christ that we find treasures. It is in Christ that we find riches. And He reveals Himself to through the Word of God. And so the Word is to come and to dwell in our life and the impacts become profound. We begin to impact one another as we see back here in our text, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And so we begin to teach one another. As we gain unique insights into the Word of God, we begin to share that with one another. You realize that that the Word dwelling in your life is not just for you? That the insights that you get during your times in God's Word are not just to, to end with you, but you are to take those and offer those insights to your brothers and sisters with whom you've developed relationships with within the church. We are to teach one another and to explain to one another the Word and what God is teaching us. And we're also to admonish one another, which is kind of the negative ministry of the Word of God, to head off sin. We see sin coming in each other's life and we take the word and are able to help one another as we exhort one another towards righteousness and godliness. This, of course, will take wisdom, won't it? It's hard to admonish each other, which is why we need the word, because he says teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. The word's going to make us wise. We live in a land of foolishness, land of folly. Let's be a wise people through the word of God. And so the Word comes and impacts us in this way. But of course, we haven't even said anything about praise or singing. When Paul begins to explain the impact of the Word on our relationship with God, you see, it not only enables ministry, but it empowers our praise. The Word empowers our praise for he goes on and says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so the Word comes and we respond to it by praising God, specifically by singing to God. This is what worship is. Worship is simply the the heartfelt response to the revelation of God. Now, worship is not always singing. In fact, quite often it's not singing. We worship God in many ways. I trust and hope you are responding to God even as His Word is preached right now, responding in your heart. That's worship. But worship includes singing. And it is this response to who God is when He reveals Himself. He shows us who He is and what He's going to do. And we respond by praising Him and worshiping Him. In fact, we, we, we just read Psalm 95. Why don't you turn over there? That was an interesting psalm, I thought. We see praise all over that psalm. I'm going to turn there in Psalm 95. We'll come back to Colossians 3 in a moment. 
But Psalm 95 is one of these beautiful pictures of how God's people are to praise him and to sing to him. In Psalm 95 and verse 1, he gives this incredible invitation to the church and to the assembled people of God. He says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. And so he says, sing to him. We are to gather together and sing to him. But my question is, why? Why should we sing to him? Well, he tells us. See verse 3? See that word for? That's really, those are very important words in your Bible. They're usually kind of hinge words. He's about to tell us, justify, give a reason for what he just told us to do. For, because, since, the Lord is a great God. And, and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea are his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry ground. So he tells us why we're to worship him. He, look in verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Why? Verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. It says, worship God, praise God, because he's great and he's mighty, and he, in his hand is the depths of the earth. And then he, then he goes, not only is he great and mighty, but he's intimate and loving. We're the sheep of his pasture. He is our shepherd, and you ought to worship him because uh, that he loves you, and we are in relationship with you. You see what the psalmist is doing? He's surveying the excellencies of God. Right? He's reflecting upon God's greatness and God's wonder and God's love and intimacy until his heart explodes in praise and song as he invites other people. Let's come. He's worthy of us praising him. He's worthy of us singing to him. I love uh, Tim Keller uses a, a, a neat illustration when he talks about praising God and worshiping God. He, he says, imagine a woman who inherited a, a family uh, jewel, maybe a pendant or something. And it's been in the family for generations, and it keeps getting passed down from one generation to the next. And no one really knows where it came from or what it's worth. In fact, no one really knows where it is half the time. It's tucked away in some drawer. No one's paying it any attention. Well, one day the, the owner decides to get it appraised. And so she takes this pendant out of curiosity to the jeweler, and he, he puts his little eye thingy in, and, and he begins to look at this, and he sees the way it reflects the light, and... He sees the cut of the gems and the color and the texture and, and, and all that. And she noticed that he starts to, starts to breathe a little heavier. And, and sweat begins to form on his brow. And finally, this the eye thing, he falls out onto the table. Right? And he says, do you, do you know what you have here? And he goes on to explain that this jewel is this long-lost jewel that people have been searching for for centuries and the craftsmanship is so ex exquisite that it's been, we don't even know how to do things like this. And he knows in his hand is worth something more than all the jewels in his shop. In fact, something worth more than all the jewels he has ever had. And he begins to respond by that, by the value of what he now has. And of course, she's utterly astonished because she realizes she has not been living in accordance with what she had. Right? She's been ignorant of the worth of this jewel, and she had not been living in the way she ought to live. And now her entire life is changed, now that she knows the value of what she has. That's worship. When you know the value of the God who has secured you, who has bought you through the blood of His Son, and what He promises for you, your heart will respond to Him. 
It will praise Him. It will long for Him. The psalmist is like the jeweler, isn't he? He's just kind of rationally kind of observing who God is and thinking about God and evaluating God and considering what He's done for us. And it begins to kind of dawn on Him the value of of God and the worth of God and the majesty of God. And He begins to become compelled to praise God, to rejoice in God, to ascribe God the worth in which He has discovered. I find it interesting that most Americans say they believe in God. Oh yeah, I I believe in God. God. But, but they have God the same way that this woman has her jewel. Right? He's tucked away somewhere. And having literally no impact on their life whatsoever. Completely unaware of the value of God. But when you become aware of God and who He is and what He's done, it will transform your life. It will bring out praise from you. In fact, how, how did this psalmist become aware? Well, I trust he became aware through God's Word. I mean, how does he know God's a great God or he's above all gods? Or how does he know he's a shepherd? You notice he doesn't say, you know, I kind of like to think of God as my shepherd. That makes me feel good. I find that inspiring. And so that's the way I think about God. He doesn't say that at all. He just mentions the fact God is a shepherd. He is a great God because he has considered who God is through God's revelation, through the scripture, through God's word, and it has propelled his praise. In fact, we see this happen throughout scripture. You, Paul is famous for doing this. He's just moving along and talking about God and right in the middle of one of his letters, he just explodes in doxology, just kind of right there in the middle. He says, I just got to stop telling you about God and we got to worship God for a little bit. And so in first Timothy chapter one, he says to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Right? He says in Ephesians chapter three, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power at work within us to him, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. See, Paul's considering who God is, man. He could do anything. He could do anything that we can't even think of. And he says, we should just stop and to him be glory. He says, and him be power forever ever and ever, even Jude. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Saying, God's going to hold you. He's going to keep you. He's going to bring you into the joy of his presence. Well, what does that do to him? Be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. You see, when God's people begin to consider who God is through the word, it will, it will propel praise from our hearts. In fact, we see this throughout the history of the church. Whenever you see a revival, the historians tell us, of God's people, there's always, following that revival, is a revival of worship. We see it in the Protestant Reformation when congregational singing spread all over the church. We see it in the Wesleyan revivals when it was followed by all these new hymns and all these worship. We, we see it in the, in the Jesus movement, the 60s and 70s, in which praise became so important as to people begin to find Christ. They, they find the word and then they are compelled to praise him. Therefore, we must center ourselves on the word. If we're going to worship God well, we must be people of God's word. We, we should come into this room every week spending time in God's word. I invite you to come to Sunday school. It starts at nine o'clock. There's classes all over this building where they're considering God's word. Maybe just as a way to prime your heart to enter in with God's people and to worship him and to exalt him, to sing to him. 
In fact, the more I think about this, the more I think our songs that we should sing, some of the songs we sing are, we're singing about what we plan to do. I don't know if you notice that. You know, I'm going to cast my cares on you, we sing. And, and, and that's good and appropriate. And I, I appreciate that. And I, I think there's a place for that. But I wonder if the majority of the songs we should sing are not what we're going to do but what God has done and what God will do and who God is. And I wonder if that would work in our hearts because the word is given to us that we might praise him. And as I mentioned, we praise him from our hearts as we see secondly, that we are to praise God from our thank, from thankful hearts. Look again in verse 16. He says that we are singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. And so we're to sing from our hearts. So what's the opposite? So evidently, there's a way to sing and not from your heart, right? And so I assume maybe that's singing from your lips or singing just with your mouth. And, and evidently, praise to God is not what you do with your mouth alone. It's what comes out of your heart that passes through your mouth. When he talks about praising Him from our heart, He means you feel it and you mean it, that you sing with delight for God. There's a great joy in Him. There should be earnestness in our praise. We should sing from our hearts. I, I, I don't know if you've ever listened to people sing not from their hearts. Have you ever been to a church service in which everyone's singing with their mouths only? Um, I, 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 you know I wasn't raised as a Christian. We never walked into a church except when we were with my grandparents. And my, my grandparents brought us to a, to a little church. And, and I now know, um, in hindsight, the word was just totally absent from there. And it's not a healthy church. And, but I remember as an you know, eight-year-old, nine-year-old boy going to those church services you ever you ever so bored it's like painful right i mean it's just excruciating it's like ah what are these people doing here they're just droning on in between their yawns and they're even as a, a child i saw there's no delight here there's no there's no earnestness here there there's no, nothing from their hearts coming out i think i've told you the story about the the boy who asked his father what's the highest number you've ever counted to and the father was kind of taken back by that. And he said to the boy, I don't, I don't know. What's the highest number you've ever counted to? In which the boy responded, 5,372. And so the father was somewhat surprised and said, well, why did you stop there? And the boy said, church was over. Right? 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 So a lot of times we come to church, right? And there's like, I'll find something to do. So I'm going to count. That's how I felt as a little boy going to church. See, if we're not seeking God with our hearts, going after him, then the people who come here are just going to be bored as we're bored. That's not an honor Him. Our hearts need to propel us. Our hearts need to engage us when we praise God. Um, in fact, I think that's what the whole point of music, isn't it? I appreciate Bob Coughlin who wrote, Music is the language of emotion in every culture of every age. It is capable of affecting us in profound and subtle ways. William Law, the great devotional writer of old, said there is nothing that so clears the way for our prayers, nothing that so disperses dullness of heart, nothing that so purifies the soul from poor and little passions, nothing that so opens heaven or carries your heart near it as songs of praise. They create a sense and delight in God. They awaken holy desires. They teach you how to ask. They prevail with God to give. They kindle a holy flame. They turn your heart into an altar, your prayers into incense, and carry them as a sweet-smelling savor, savor to the throne of grace. This is, I think there's something important happening when we're singing and not simply speaking because singing is to be in its very nature an emotional event and God is worthy of your emotions. Not just your mind. 
He is not simply worthy of you thinking about Him or considering Him or analyzing Him. He is worthy of your heart. He is too great. Salvation is too wonderful. Heaven is too uh, amazing simply to be thought about. He deserves to be praised for it. We need to get excited about God. Now, how you get excited and how I get excited may be totally different. So I'm not telling you how to get excited. I'm just telling you ought to get excited because God is exciting. And God is amazing. And it ought to impact where your heart is. This is why singing is so important. It's why God commands us to sing. There's John Piper who said, Music and singing are necessary to Christian faith and worship for the simple reason that the realities of God and Christ, creation and salvation, heaven and hell, are so great that when they are truly known truly and felt duly, they demand more than discussion and analysis and description. They demand song and music. Singing is the Christian's way of saying God is so great that thinking will not suffice. There must be deep feeling and talking will not suffice. There must be singing. So do you sing from your heart? When you come, is your heart engaged? You're praising the one who has redeemed you through Christ's death and resurrection, who has secured for you your eternity. He's worthy of your highest emotion. And singing helps express them. In fact, one emotion he calls for is thanksgiving. You see that there in verse 16? With thankfulness in your hearts. Which is not to say there's not time of sorrow, not times of difficulty. But if you're a Christian, God saved you. Your eternity is secure through Jesus. He has redeemed you. There should be, therefore, a foundation of joy, of thankfulness in your heart. In fact, I often think that perhaps one of the remedies for despondency or sadness is to sing. It's to sing to God. I love Psalm 57. We don't have time to look there, but you might want to look there this week. The psalmist begins and says, you know, my life is terrible. Everybody hates me. Praise God. He is awesome. And then he says, you know, nothing's going right. And I lost everything, but praise God, he is awesome. And I don't know how this is all going to work out. It doesn't look good for me, but praise God, he is awesome. He says, he just lists over and over everything that's going wrong in his life. There's not a single petition in that psalm. Not one thing. Hey, God, can you do this, by the way? He just wants to praise him. And I wonder if he is fighting through his sorrow by praising him. I'm going to praise him regardless. I'm going to worship. I think about Paul and Silas there and they're chained in the prison in Philippi. And what are they doing there at midnight with their feet in stocks and their backs lacerated? The, the, the doors closed, the morning uncertain. What are they doing at midnight? They're singing. They're singing to God in prison at the lowest point of your life. I wonder when you get to the lowest point of your life, if you ought to sing to God, if you ought to praise him. And that may sound simple. That even may sound to some of you stupid. Right, you're thinking, come on, you have no idea the pain I'm feeling. Well, I don't. But I'll tell you, they were in prison. That's pretty low. They may be killed in the morning. That's pretty low. And they start to sing. And what happens? Well, an earthquake happens and the chains fall off and the doors come open. That's pretty good, right? Right? Sing. And and the jailer comes and his family is saved. And then like at 4 a.m. they have a baptism. All the family gets saved. And then in the morning they're escorted out of prison. Right? Sing with thankful hearts. It pleases God. It brings him pleasure. In fact, we're not simply to sing with our thankful hearts. You notice thirdly, our praise is enabled by the Spirit. I want you to turn over to the book of Ephesians. 
Ephesians is about three or four pages towards the front of your Bible, and we're going to be just for a moment in Ephesians 5. This Ephesians and Colossians are kind of parallel books. They're both written at the same time when Paul was in prison. And they're very similar. And we have a parallel passage in Ephesians 5, which I, is going to help us understand what we're supposed to be doing when we sing. You notice verse 18. Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he tells us the impact of being filled with the Spirit. Verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. You see what Paul is telling us here is that singing is an expression of the fullness of the Spirit. That the Spirit's presence in our life will create a desire in you to sing to God. Which makes sense in my mind, because if God is worthy of our praise, and He desires our praise, and He happens to be dwelling within us, He is going to compel that praise. He is going to move us in many ways. But one way, evidently, is that the fullness of the Spirit will lead to singing. In fact, you notice verse 18, He contrasts getting drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit. And so when you're drunk with wine, you're, you're controlled with wine, aren't you? You're influenced by wine. You start to act and feel certain ways, and namely stupid ways, right? You notice whenever someone gets drunk with wine, wisdom does not come out, right? It's folly. Somewhere deep inside us, there's still folly in our heart. And, and that wine, evidently, that drunkenness allows for that, that to come out of us where we begin to be controlled by it. He says, don't get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled by the Spirit. You'll feel and act in certain ways. The Spirit's going to compel you. Namely, singing, evidently. The Spirit's going to compel us to praise God. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I wonder, to be perfectly honest, is this why charismatic, more charismatic-leaning Christians and churches, they sing a lot louder than typical Baptist churches, right? We're being honest. I wonder if it's because they're focused, they are driven towards the Spirit and want to be filled with the Spirit and focusing on the Spirit, and the Spirit is doing this work in their hearts, singing and praising God. In fact, you look at this, I'm going to be really frank with you, and you could, you could help me understand if I'm understanding this text wrong. But I, I don't see how you, how anyone can be filled with the Spirit and not want to sing to God. Um, that's what it says. Filled with the Spirit, the impact is to address God to, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You can grieve the Spirit, of course, and quench Him and resist Him. But if you choose not to sing, you know, I'm just not going to sing, I will tell you based on the biblical authority that you are not filled with the Spirit. That the Spirit will propel you and compel you to do this according to God's Word here. And so let's seek the Spirit. That's His work in our heart to propel us and to compel us to praise. A praise that you see, fourthly, is directed to God. If you turn your way back to Colossians, you notice that we're supposed to worship God. Our praise is directed to Him, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And so our worship is focused on God. It is to God. We sing with the intent that God would hear our songs, right? That's what we're doing. We want God to listen. We want God to be pleased and find pleasure. It's our offering to Him. And so we sing to Him. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning our song shall rise to Thee. We're singing to Him. Joyful, joyful, we adore Thee. 
God of glory, Lord of love, come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy praise. Right? We are singing to Him. We are addressing Him. That's what we're doing when we gather. We're offering something to God, our heart's worship. Perhaps you're here this morning you're not a Christian. I don't know if you, you, you've taken in what we've done today as we sung to God. We are singing to God in response to what God has done for us. We're not singing to Him in order to try to get His favor. We have secured His favor. And we want to respond to Him in praise. The reason we have God's favor is not because we consider ourselves to be particularly good people or nice people or righteous people. In fact, we consider ourselves in our natural state to be God's enemy. And that God in His great love sent His Son Jesus Christ to live a perfect life for us and to die on the cross as a, to take our punishment upon Himself. And then three days later, He rose from the dead. And the Bible says if we place our faith in Him, if we bend our knee to Him and trust Him, He will save us. Scripture says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. We believe that as Christians. And we come together to respond to Him and to praise Him for it. Our praise is to God. Now, I know that may sound obvious to us who are Christians. Of course, we're worshiping to God. Of course, our worship's directed to Him. But I wonder how obvious it is in light of um, the land and the day in which we live. I think many people come to these worship services thinking, what can I get? Not what can I give. I'm here to receive, not here to offer. I recently uh, took Allegra to a restaurant that uh, we cannot afford. Um, we did that because someone else was paying, which means we bought, got the filet and dessert, and we had a wonderful time. It was one of those fancy restaurants, and I was kind of, you know, very, very fancy. And I was kind of concerned that it was one of those restaurants where the guy who sits you takes the napkin and puts it in your lap. And that's just kind of a level of service I don't require, right? I'm not, I'm not. And so I'm walking in and there's the napkin and I just grab it and throw it in my lap before he even could reach out for it. Right? I don't, I don't need that type of service. I think a lot of people approach their church as a, maybe a fancy restaurant. Come and sit down and take care of me and entertain me and sing the songs I like and let the instruments be the ones that I want to hear, the ones that I grew up with, and I just hope it's enjoyable. And unfortunately, many, many pastors and church leaders have taught people this. There's been this great drive in the last 50 years in church to grow the church and grow the church and grow the church. And when our focus becomes off God and onto church growth, We begin to think, okay, what can we do to attract the crowds? And what can we do to keep the crowds? And what can we do to entertain the crowds? And we create congregations with expectations. Give me, serve me. I want to be fed. They say, I'm going to go to a place that feeds me, entertain me. And I'll join in singing if I like the song. As if it's up to us. As if God really cares whether you like the song. It's not for you. It's for Him. It, we're, we're, not, I, we're not here to... I'm not here to make you have an enjoyable time. I hope you, I hope you don't find it un, uh, not enjoyable. So, yeah, I hope you don't walk away thinking, that was terrible. In fact, I spent a lot of time and effort actually trying to, to be able to hone this craft of preaching in which engages people and draws them in and keeps them awake and, and compels them towards God. And I don't want it to be a, a miserable experience for you. But we're not here to put a napkin in your lap. Right? 
We're here for you and I to stand shoulder to shoulder and focus our attention on who God is and what He has done and respond to Him appropriately. And so it really doesn't matter what you like or what I like. It matters what He likes, and I'm here to seek Him. I want to have a church that seeks Christ. We want Christ to to live as Christ, and everything we're about is Jesus, not us. And we are confusing people. And I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but here goes. Um, and, And I... I, I, I'm confused by when churches begin. Well, see, what we try to do is we try to unify the church based around a style of music. And the style of music is never, music is never intended to unify the church. It is intended to express our unity. You know where our unity is found? It's found in Jesus. It's not found in the fact that you and I listen to the same radio stations, therefore we can come to the same church service. Right? That's just silly to me. I, I had a lady who called me on the phone um, a couple weeks ago and says, Hey, Pastor, do you have a traditional service or a contemporary service? And I told her, no, we have a Jesus service. Right? Um, I didn't say that. I wanted to say that. Um, but, you know. I don't know. I don't know if this is contemporary or traditional. I don't know what it is. I don't, I don't really care. I, I want to focus on Jesus. It's not for you. It's not for me. It's for my God. Right, you think about it. He is the great God. He is God above all gods. He holds the earth in the depth of his hands and he is holy and righteous and you are not. And he sent his son to this earth to live a perfect life and die a brutal death upon the cross, nailed there because you're wicked and I'm wicked. And three days later as a king, he rises from the grave and ascends to heaven. One day he's coming back with a sword and the armies of angels to right every wrong and to usher us into eternity of bliss and, and joy. And we're thinking, where's my organ? Where's my drum set? Where's my guitar? We're thinking, are we really going to sing this song one more time? Maybe we should start thinking about what is, what are we here for? I'm here for Jesus. I pray that I don't want to be a church that's here to entertain. In fact, I would submit to you that the majesty and the greatness of God will be far more satisfying than some entertainment. I think God is worthy of it. I think people are starving for the greatness of God. And if it is not here, I don't know where they're going to find it. They're not going to find it on television or on the Internet. They're not starving for entertainment. They're not starving for amusing speeches. They get that everywhere. Let's give them God. Let's focus on Him. It is directed to God. You notice, fifthly, our praise is varied in style. In verse 16 says we are singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now there are three different types of praise here. That's what these specifically mean. We don't know. It's been lost to time. Right? But what we do know is that there's variety here. And what I think Paul is explaining is that no singular style captures the greatness of God. God relates to us in different ways, and so maybe we sing to him in different ways. When we're rejoicing in the incarnation, maybe it would be appropriate to shout joy to the world. When we're stunned by God's grace, maybe we can explain, and can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Or when we're overwhelmed by hardship, maybe we would respond by singing, it is well in my soul. Or when we gather little children, we might proclaim, Jesus loves the little children, all God's children of the world. 
One author writes, God meets us in high and holy ways. He meets us in lowly and meek ways. He meets us in thunderously glorious ways. He meets us in quiet, intimate ways. He meets us in complex and simple ways, furious ways and merciful ways. There are aspects of God's character in relation to us that can only be expressed with high and fine expressions of music like Handel's Messiah. And there are aspects of God's character in relation to us that can only be expressed with more common and folk-like kinds of music like the B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. We see this various style. And so let's not get all bent out of shape with the style of worship. Our unity is not found in style. It's found in Christ. And let's let, let God lead our church as we want to sing to him. Lastly, our praise is offered together. All of this is done together. This is a corporate gathering that Paul's writing about. You see that very clearly earlier in this chapter, especially in verse 15, in which they are gathering together to sing. We sing together. And when we sing together, it intensifies our worship. It, it, it strengthens our praise. It encourages us. In fact, I don't know if you notice in that verse in Ephesians, he actually says, sing to one another. Did you see that? Sing to one another. Though we're singing to God at the same time we're singing to each other, which is at times awkward because most people don't want me to sing to them. Right? They want me to stick to preaching. But we are to sing to each other. That's what we're doing here. We're singing to God, but we're encouraging one another. In fact, we sing to one another all the time. And praise God from whom all blessings flow. Right? That's not addressed address to one another, ultimately to God, but we're, at, we're inviting each other to praise God or crown Him with many crowns or all creature of our God and King, lift up your voice to Him and sing. Right? We're inviting each other. We're singing to one another. And so we gather together and we worship together and praise together. And sometimes we have choirs and cantatas and solo performance, uh, solo songs because they are singing to us as God's Word tells us to address one another in song and hymns and spiritual songs and it's good and biblical and encouraging and strengthens our faith and we are to gather and sing to be heard. We want others to hear us here when we gather together and we can hear them. It is for our good. Sometimes you you hear people say, you know, at at times of worship, I just want you to to pretend that you are here alone with God and, and just kind of block everybody out and just want you to dial in on God just like you and God. Well, just forget, they say, forget the person next to you. Well, the person next to you is there for a reason. The church is gathered together. There are times for you and God to get alone, no doubt. But it is not this morning, at this time, when we gather together as God's people, that we should see one another and hear one another and be strengthened by one another, that we are worshiping our God together. I wonder if God has done anything worthy of your praise. I wonder if he has done anything worthy of your celebration as a church. I was thinking about what God has done for us this week. You realize that it's through the death of Jesus that we have peace with God and joy in Christ and hope for a future and freedom from fear and security and trial and guidance and uncertainty and victory and temptation. That we have forgiveness of sin and the abatement of wrath and the demonstration of grace and the imputation of righteousness and the perseverance of faith and the guarantee of holiness. We have the removal of guilt, the rescue from the present evil age, eternal life, reconciliation with others. We belong to God. We've been adopted as sons and daughters. We possess the Holy Spirit of God. 
We've been liberated from the slavery of sin. We have purpose in our marriage, direction in our parenthood, equipment in our ministry, enablement for fruitfulness. Our enemy has been defeated. We've been relieved from the final judgment. We will receive the resurrection from the dead, a crown upon our head, the marriage feast of the Lamb, and we will worship with the angels in the presence of our God and Creator and King and Shepherd and Savior and Lord. Has He done anything worthy of your praise? Has He done anything worthy of celebration? To Him who has done far more than you could even think or imagine, to Him be glory in the church now and forever. Amen. Amen. Father in heaven, we praise You. We praise You with our hearts even now as we consider who You are and what You have done. And yet You have called us to praise You in a unique and beautiful way, namely through singing. And so we pray for Your Spirit to come into our lives even in greater fullness now that He would have control over us. That He might compel us to be people who praise and celebrate our God. Help us to lay ourselves down and stop thinking of ourselves. Let our focus be every time we gather by Your grace as Your people, our God and His Son. And that we might respond with our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.